morning. Um, this morning we will read from 2 Corinthians uh, from the very start until verse 11. Uh, if you're reading on the, from a pew Bible, it is on page 1644. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you. Um, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors, and I uh, spend most of my time with university students in the evening, but uh, I'll be able to open uh, 2 Corinthians with us over the next couple of weeks, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, you'll find in front of you, hopefully, um, one of these outlines uh, in it that'll help you follow along. Um, I put it together two weeks ago, and uh, it may have changed at points slightly, so if, if you're finding it hard to follow, it's roughly the same. There are points at which it's different, and I apologise for that. Um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father God, we want to ask that as we come to hear you speak, uh, that you would speak to us um, by your mighty and powerful word. Please transform us by your spirit um, to trust you and to hope in you and to be comforted by you. Uh, We ask that you would humble us to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, our passage today says a lot about comfort and, uh, and pain as well. And uh, one of the tricky things for us as uh, people in 21st century Adelaide as we come to a passage like this is that we actually have a whole lot of cultural baggage um, that, as, about how we think about comfort that makes it hard for us to think and hear what the passage is saying. Um, so before we get into the, the passage itself, I just want to spend a moment talking about some of the changes in the way uh, the Western people have talked, uh, thought about pain over the last 50 or 60 years. Now, um, David Williams, he's a a missiologist with uh, the Church Missionary Society. He's reflecting here on what others have said about pain and our culture. Um, Have a listen to what he says. Those of us who teach Culture 101 explain that there are three main ways to view the world and make decisions. 
You can live in a world that's controlled by the spirits, where you try and gain power in the face of fear. You can live in a world that's controlled by community expectation, where you try to gain honour and avoid shame. Or you can live in a world that's controlled by individual conscience, where you try to maintain innocence and avoid guilt. I suggest that guilt innocence is a fading paradigm. And I think we're moving from being a guilt innocence culture to becoming a pain pleasure culture. Of course, the language of pain and pleasure is nothing new. The pleasure principle is a cornerstone of Freudian psychology. And Freud argued that human beings have always been driven by an instinctive desire to seek pleasure and avoid pain. Of course, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain is the hallmark of hedonism. But what I'm suggesting is that pain and pleasure is becoming the Western worldview. It is the basis on which our culture is making decisions. So what he's saying is that there's been a shift uh, in our culture about how we think about pain. Uh, He's saying that pain formally was one factor that influenced how we make decisions and perhaps a necessary part of a good life. And so we have sayings like, um, nothing good happens without a bit of hard work. Now, though, um, for kind of 21st century Adelaideans, um, pain is the driving factor in how we think about what's good and bad. Uh, That's the shift that he thinks has taken place. You can think about that for yourself. But um, what he's saying is not an abstract idea. It's not just kind of nice philosophy. It's actually very everyday. Um, So, for instance, I want you to think for a moment about uh, the person who's just finished school, they're 18 years old, and they're trying to work out what to to do with the rest of their life and where to go to university and what to do at uni, all those kind of things. Now, I think for um, most 18-year-olds, the 18-year-olds in the room can correct me uh, about this, but I think the, um, the default factor that influences what they would like to do uh, at university or TAFE is uh, really about whether they will enjoy what they're going to do and find personal meaning in their work. And now that's so obvious in a sense I don't really need to, to say it. And that's uh, Enjoyment is so key to the way we make decisions. And things like um, the income that you make for that work or um, the social value of the work or the work-life balance or the difficulty of the degree, those things, they're, they're kind of relevant. They inform the decision. But the number one driving factor, I think, is actually a pain-pleasure thing. It's about enjoyment. It's about whether this option will be personally meaningful, satisfying, and therefore enjoyable. Now, let's imagine for a second we've got an 18-year-old who says, comes home and says, Mum and Dad, I've decided what I want to do. I'm going to go study fine arts and anthropology. Now, um, those are noble fields. How are the parents going to feel at that point? Um, from a few friends who had this conversation with their parents when they were 18, uh, sometimes parents can get a little bit upset uh, when a child comes home and says, I want to do fine arts and anthropology. And that's because they're asking different questions about what makes a career or study thing good. Uh, Does this degree or career have social value, is a a question a parent might ask. Um, Is it going to enable my child to contribute to society, community and family? Uh, Is it going to provide them with an income that they can use to support themselves and others? Um, And if that 18-year-old was to talk to their grandparents or their great-grandparents or their great-great-grandparents, actually, um, they'd probably struggle to understand the way that each other approach those decisions. And what David Williams is saying is that that's more than just about generational differences or about the fact that as you get older, uh, you kind of become a little bit more savvy and grumpy sometimes about life. Um, He's saying there's been a fundamental shift in the way that we think about psychological pleasure and pain in how we make decisions. Now, 
as we come to our passage, what does that all mean? Well, I think it means that uh, because avoiding pain is so central to the way that we make decisions, as modern people, we find it very difficult to endure or tolerate pain. And we actually have a vast uh, kind of array of different ways to deal with pain. Uh, we have the, the soothing presence of Instagram and social media. Uh, we have workaholism, materialism, luxury lifestyle. Um, there's been a growth in recent years in Eastern religion and the practice of meditation in which suffering is an illusion. Um, the abuse of alcohol, um, because as, as Sia famously put it, party girls don't get hurt. Um, we have all sorts of ways to deal with discomfort. And so alongside a changing understanding of pain is a changing understanding of what comfort is. Um, if pain is the enemy of what is good, then you can't have painful comfort. It just doesn't make sense. Comfort, comfort must be pleasurable. And so comfort for us is about things like sitting by the pool with a beer in hand watching the Boxing Day test. Uh, it's about going up to the hills and on a cold wintry day, the, the wind's blowing all around and you're inside a nice cafe um, having a hot chocolate while, um, while the elements are kind of going on around you. That's, that's comfort. My Asian friends tell me that chicken rice, that is comfort. Now, the church also has Christianized versions of comfort. And uh, if you go into a bookstore or, or look on your YouTube feed, you'll find plenty of advocates of a pain-free Christianity. And so we live in this culture that longs for a comfort uh, that is pain-free. And yet the, the problem with all this, of course, is that uh, as long as you've lived 10 minutes in this world, you realise that actually pain is part of life, isn't it? Um, what's the very first thing that happens to a baby after it's born? Well, often it's, it's weighed. And the way to do that is you take the baby and it hasn't got any clothes on, you put it on a cold, hard scale and it cries. And that's the first 10 minutes of life. Um, life from the get-go is painful. And we might not like that, uh, but we can't escape it. Now, um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is also writing to a church in pain, and possibly one of the most painful situations that we see in the New Testament. You can see on your leaflet there a couple of the, the moments in the letter where that is, that's obvious, so that's the situation. Um, the background to, to uh, the letter here is that Paul's uh, first planted uh, this church in Corinth around AD 50, which is about 20 years after Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Um, and he went on a missionary voyage around the northeast of the Mediterranean. And we, we hear about his journey to Corinth in Acts 18. Now, after Corinth, which um, is, I think, in modern-day Greece, I'm pretty sure, Paul went to Ephesus, which is definitely in modern-day Turkey. And uh, he spent several years there teaching. And while he was in Ephesus, um, Paul heard this kind of disturbing reports about what was going on in Corinth. He heard reports of things like boasting and that everyone was forming teams and dividing against each other and they were greedy and they were sexually immoral and there was this spiritual one-upmanship that was taking place and a whole lot of mess. And so um, Paul wrote the letter that we now have as 1 Corinthians in response. Now, meanwhile, Paul's in Ephesus. Meanwhile, in Ephesus, things are getting um, increasingly difficult. And Paul describes in verse 9 of our passage a great pressure, a great pressure beyond his ability to endure. And we get a sense of what that might have looked like in Acts 19, where we see a, a public riot described against Paul's teaching. The city comes up in arms because Paul has this teaching uh, that there is only one true God and idols are nothing. And during this time of opposition and distress... Timothy comes back from Corinth bringing further bad news that uh, the Corinthians hadn't listened to Paul's first letter. He'd written this long letter to instruct them and they hadn't listened. 
And more than that, false teachers had um, come into the Corinthian church trying to persuade them to return to Jewish religion. And so Paul found himself uh, needing to write again. And this letter, um, we don't have a copy of, um, but it's described in 2 Corinthians, uh, I think in chapter 2. And Paul uh, describes writing through tears, um, knowing that this letter was going to cause the Corinthians great sorrow. Now, 2 Corinthians happens after that, and by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, the situation is fraught. There's this I hate Paul bandwagon, which is growing in the church, and it's grown to compound all sorts of issues like Paul's travel plans and his attitude to money and his decision to send a letter rather than coming face to face and his suffering. Um, Often uh, when we're, we're frustrated about things, things just kind of compound and this whole list of grievances developed. And Paul is, at this point, um, very weak, both in the Corinthians' eyes and his eyes. And there's this situation where Paul knows that the Corinthians may well walk away from him and his ministry. And yet if they do, uh, they're not just going to find their way to a church down the road where um, you know, they, they can have a different minister of the gospel and still be Christians and keep growing in their faith. At this time, um, Paul is Jesus' apostle, Jesus' messenger, coming to them with the true news of the gospel. If they turn to a different gospel, a different Jesus, um, then they have lost touch with true Christianity and Jesus himself. And so that's the situation Paul finds himself in as he writes to Corinthians. And he appeals in this letter uh, for reconciliation, reconciliation with him and his ministry, but also with God. That's 2 Corinthians. So it's this letter from a a pained apostle, apostle going through a great deal of hard stuff to a pained church. Uh, and so as we think about comfort and pain, it's a, a great place to go. Now, with that context in mind, uh, I just want to take us back then to the opening few lines uh, and try and hear what Paul says then in, the, in that light. So this is Paul, an apostle to the church of God in Corinth, grace and peace from God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Paul could have begun the letter there uh, in a number of ways. Um, He could have berated them. He could have expressed his fears. Um, He could have said sorry. He could have listed all the ways in which he knew that they were hurt. Instead, he says, praise God. Praise God and praise God. Um, a particular attribute of God, that God is the God who is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now, strategically, um, this is quite brilliant, isn't it? Because Paul, in a sense, is speaking to people who are hurting and he gets alongside them and he puts an arm around them and rather than um, berating them, he starts, he starts soft. But it's far more than strategy, Um, Paul really believes this. This is true. This is the thing that has comforted Paul. And so Paul here wants to redirect their gaze from the conflict and from his ministry towards the God that has saved both of them, who is always the same. And as he begins, he identifies this God as the one who is the essence and the source of all comfort and compassion. He says, praise God as you hurt Corinthians because God himself is a comforter. 
Now, um, you might have just noticed as in that opening verse that God is described as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the Father bit about? Um, I think by speaking of God as a Father here and the Father of the Lord Jesus, um, Paul's showing us that God is not an abstract or vague comforter. Um, sometimes we can have just a kind of warm, fuzzy vibe of God that he's kind of like just up there doing comforting stuff. Um, but God comforts in relationship. Uh, he comforts in a personal way. He comforts as a father, comforts their son. I think we see this um, quite clearly down in verse 9. Uh, if you come with me down to verse 9, Paul says uh, in the second half, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Now, um, who has God raised from the dead in the Bible? Well, um, most notably, Jesus, right? Jesus, the Son of of God. Um, and he raised him from crucifixion, from pain. I think we see here what a, a sense of what it means that God comforts. God comforted his son by raising him from the distress of crucifixion to life forever as the king. And so Paul says, praise God. And those words are not just for the Corinthians in their distress, but this is the same God that we have, the God of every generation who is always the same for those in any kind of distress. And for anyone who's in distress, Paul invites us to turn and praise God. I think the sense here is not just of um, speaking words of praise, not just of singing, but a sense of delighting and loving and seeking and turning towards this God. Uh, I read a quote during the week. A guy called John Flavel said this. He said, remember that this God in whose hand are all creatures, is your Father, and he is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. I think that's, that's a sense, that God is even better at comforting than we are, and so we should remember him. We should turn to him. I just want to um, notice for a second, that in the world that we live in, uh, and a world that longs for pleasure and longs for comfort, um, just think about how the comforts compare. Uh, God's comfort, it doesn't just distract us uh, like our Instagram feed. Um, it doesn't just tranquilize for a moment like alcohol. It's not momentary like chilling on the couch, and, but you get up, life goes on, demands come back. Um, one writer put it, comfort is not a tranquilizing dose of grace. It's not like a, there you go, you're better now. Um, comfort is a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. It's about encouragement and help, as Bernie reminded us before. Our God offers us real help. Now, um, you might ask, how does God do that? Uh, what is the way in which God comforts us? Often when we pray for people, as Christians, we might pray that God would comfort them. How does he do that? Uh, well, actually, there's lots of, uh, lots of different answers. Um, uh, the gift of prayer, the gift of God's word, the gift of God's uh, people. God's Holy Spirit is the comforter, um, his consolation who dwells within us and helps our hearts to hope in him. Uh, God is the sovereign Lord who can change circumstances when they're difficult and make things better. And yet the place that Paul goes in this passage um, is most of all to the work of God's son, Jesus. So look at verse 5. Uh, it says, Just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. 
Now, I think that, that phrase, through Christ, is really important there. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not just a general comfort. It's a comfort that comes particularly uh, in association with Jesus. Now, um, what does through Christ mean? It's a bit of a shorthand kind of expression. Um, and if we read other letters from Paul, um, and even we get hints of it here, um, that, that through Christ is referring to Christ's work of living, dying, and rising from the dead, and the promise that he'll one day come back uh, to make all things new. God comforts us through Christ. And so what is God's comfort? Um, I think it's his work of taking what we know about Jesus uh, and taking those truths and applying them to our hearts and our minds by his spirit so that um, we feel uh, a sense of um, gratitude, thankfulness, um, uh, comfort because of what he has done. Now, I think it's possible, um, if you've been a Christian for a while, to kind of know that Christ's death really should be comforting, shouldn't it? Uh, Christ's resurrection should be comforting, um, but to kind of forget that it, that it is, like not to actually feel any sense of that. But Paul here, I think, considers that what Christ has done, it's not just a nice street. Like, it's really, really comforting. So comforting that he can use shorthand and just say, uh, God is the one who raises the dead. And that actually uh, carries the sense of comfort. I think what he's saying is uh, God raises the dead is a shorthand for a whole set of truths that we need to reflect on and remember uh, for the news that Christ himself experienced the worst of human evil. Um, that's comforting, isn't it? That's comforting uh, for the victim. That Christ died for the vilest of evildoers. That's comforting for the guilty. Um, it's the news that Christ rose again to a life that couldn't be taken away. Uh, that Christ is now invincible to violence and cancer and disease and old age. And Christ will return to judge every injustice and he will invite us to share bodily in his new glorious life. And it will be completely free of pain and tears and sorrow. I think that's what Paul means when he says God raises the dead. And Paul thinks that that is profoundly comforting news. And actually, as, as we go through the letter, um, if you like to read along with the letter um, at home and, and do that in your quiet times, something you might like to do is just look out for how does Paul um, kind of apply the knowledge of Jesus' life, death and resur resurrection in a comforting way to different situations. And it is profoundly comforting. He says things like that the poor, um, people who are experiencing poverty, have a richness in Jesus. He says the homeless have a home in heaven, that the weak are part of a strong kingdom, that the lonely are known by God, that the afflicted are cared for by God. That the truth of Jesus' experience utterly changed the story of our suffering because he now reigns and rules. So if we find ourselves in distress, and no doubt we will, what do we do? Well, Paul says, praise God. We should praise the God of all comfort. We should remember that he is our Father. We should pray that his spirit would help us be comforted and to delight in the gospel. And we should reflect on how the realities of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return change the story of our suffering forever. Um, we're at point four, uh, sharing together in distress and comfort. Now, as we do those things... Um, 
I think it's really important to see that Paul doesn't uh, expect that, uh, that these kind of remembering, praying, delighting, praising God, that that would be a solo activity. And Paul's uh, encouragement ends in the phrase in verse 4, um, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. So being comforted, uh, it's not an it's not a individual um, sport like tennis, it's more like soccer or football. Um, it's a communal thing, it's a relational thing. We praise, we remember, we pray together. And the reason for that is not just that we're community-minded, uh, it's actually a much deeper reality than that. Christians are united together in Christ. Whether we like it or not, if we trust in Jesus, we're a family. And so Paul says, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. The key word being share, we share in that together. Now, um, verse 5 that I just read, it's a very important verse uh, for making sense of the passage. I just want to point out a couple of things quickly about it and make a few observations that help us understand the passage. Um, First of all, looking at verse 5, we see here that Christians are expected to share in the experience of Christ. Um, As Jesus suffered, there is the expectation that Christians will also suffer, Um, even perhaps more so than they might have otherwise if they weren't Christians. Uh, The Corinthians were experiencing this. Um, If they weren't Christians, Paul would not have written them a very hard letter calling them out on their sin. Um, Because they're Christians, Paul's written them that hard letter. Um, Life can be harder sometimes for us as Christians than it might otherwise be. Jesus himself says, anyone who wants to be my follower must take up their cross, deny themselves and follow me. And yet at the same time, uh, as Jesus rose... As Jesus was comforted, so Christians also share in a deep comfort that overcomes and is better than death. Um, Secondly, uh, Jesus' followers experience comfort and suffering simultaneously. Uh, So it says, as we abound in suffering, so also in comfort. Now, I think this is a very important thing for us to notice in um, in our context, in our culture. Because it reminds us that um, the centre of our worldview, if we are followers of Jesus, is not pain and pleasure. It's actually God and his grace in Jesus. That is the centre of our world. That is the centre of how we approach life. And if God is at the centre, then pain and pleasure are not. We find in the Bible, actually, that for Christians, pain takes on a secondary kind of role. It's not the ultimate good. It's not the ultimate evil. Um, Good things in the Christian life can actually involve pain. And so the Bible speaks a lot about things like patient endurance, uh, hope, encouragement. These are words that suggest that in the midst of pain, that there is still good that God can do. And so uh, Paul describes in his own experience, verse 9 and 10, this intense suffering that he's been through in Asia. If he had a pain-pleasure mentality, he would have said, I shouldn't be an apostle, that's a bad idea. And yet, because he's a follower of Jesus, he can say that this experience, as awful as it was, actually helped him to grow in his trust in God. And so it's possible, and this is a really important framework thing for us as we go through suffering, um, it's possible for pain in the Christian life to coincide with comfort. We can simultaneously feel sad and be comforted by God. Uh, We can feel distressed and God still be at work in our lives. If we suffer, we're not far away from God. 
Um, God is able to use those times for our good. And he offers a help that is active and effective despite pain. Um, Third, just reflection on verse 5. Christians experience comfort and affliction as a community united to Jesus. Um, There's this sense here that we share. We share in affliction. We share in comfort. And there's this lovely cycle that's described where um, as we're comforted, we're expected to share that with others so that they can be comforted. And in turn, they, as they're comforted, will share. And even distress, says Paul, distress can be for the good of others. Now, I think sometimes we think of comfort from God as a, a kind of um, individual thing, like there's something that I get in the quiet of my own moments with God. Uh, and there is a sense that actually the gospel speaks to us each as individuals. And yet Paul sees it here as something that then overflows to the rest of the team. Um, I can say, personally, this is something that I've experienced um, as, a, as a member of uh, churches and, and this church and other churches in time. Um, that's a great thing, actually, to go through hard times in a Christian family. Uh, one of the things that's been hard uh, for me, particularly during my time at uni, uh, has been uh, depression, times of depression. And um, actually, God's family has been such a good place to be as I've struggled with those things uh, because I've met other brothers and sisters who've likewise... Um, wrestled with those things and been comforted by God. We actually we share in that comfort together, and that is a great blessing. Now, um, you you have another point on your handout. Um, I'm actually just going to very briefly touch on that and not go in detail here. And this is the last part of the passage. Paul gives a kind of a, a case study. It's not a case study, really. It's just his experience. But you see in his life and his experience of suffering in Asia that um, this idea of comfort and affliction, it's not... It's not just um, nice ideas. It's really real for him. And just a couple of quick things that I think we see here uh, in these verses. Uh, one is that distress is good to share with others. Paul doesn't hide his, um, his hardships. Um, Paul is open, uh, and he, he actually thinks it's important that Corinthians know. Um, secondly, I think we see that, uh, that hardship is genuinely hard. Paul uh, doesn't speak of suffering in a way that's like, yeah, I suffered, but it wasn't really that bad. Um, he says, I despaired of life itself. And I don't think he's just you know, saying that. He, I think he genuinely felt despair. Um, hardship is hard. And so as we address hardship as Christians, we want to do it in a way that's not triumphalistic um, and doesn't minimise suffering, but actually um, speaks about it in a real, meaningful way. Um, final thing we, I think we see in this, this little section is that, um, that Prayers um, have a great, um, a great privilege as they walk alongside those who are suffering and they have the privilege of seeing prayers answered. I'm not going to dwell on that too much, um, but uh, those, those sections are great to reflect on as how they um, kind of develop those ideas further. Uh, let, me, let me wrap up. Um, as Paul begins this, this letter to this church who are in pain, I think we have so much to learn about real comfort and we'll keep seeing this across the letter. We've seen this morning that... Uh, in our culture, pain is a great enemy, uh, and we have all sorts of artificial ways to deal with the discomfort of living in a world that's broken by sin. And yet, if we belong to Jesus, um, we have access to a profound and powerful comfort, a comfort that's able actually to square up to the darkest parts of human experience, because the God who made us and rules the world is himself a God of comfort. And he comforts his own son who was crucified. And he promises that with him, we too will one day rise from the dead to life everlasting. 
Now, sometimes we can be scared about talking about suffering with people who aren't Christians and, and worry that we'll be asked all sorts of difficult questions about it, and perhaps we will, but I want to say that the Christian view of comfort is really wonderful. It's actually, I think it's, I think it's genuinely better than anything else that we see in our world. Because it doesn't avoid hardship, it doesn't tire of it, it doesn't, um, it's not distant from it, it's not selfish and inward-looking, it's not abstract and vague. Um, the Christian view of comfort is that God, the Father of the Lord Jesus, comforts his children and stirs us so that we might continue to trust in him until we experience that face-to-face. So I think the right thing for us to do at this point is to pray and to praise God for his comfort and then we'll sing together Psalm 23. So let's, let's pray together. Our merciful Father, we want to thank you so much uh, that you are a God who is our deep comforter, the one who in himself is the God of comfort. Father, thank you that as we long for comfort, you are the source of all comfort. Father, thank you that you are able to comfort even amidst death, despair, uh, crucifixion, and all the evils of our world. Father, thank you that You have comforted your son. And so, Father, we ask too that you might comfort us, point us to the goodness of what Jesus has done for us. Give us peace and life in him. Help us hope in him and trust him. And please comfort us by that news and help us to be a comforting family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.